0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 299th episode, we've got a new Portuguese carcarodontosaur. It's kind of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Some geology news, which is related to dinosaurs and dinosaur of the day, Sinosauroteryx. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. We have two new patrons who joined, which is amazing. We have Dino Moe, And Francis and his Allosaurus.
1: (laughs) Both great names.
0: Yes. And our winners of our random drawing this week are Kelly, Vikram and Karthik, Kaylin, Richard, Morgan Eklove, Jared Copeland, Anne, and Albertosaurus. So thank you all again for continuing to support us and keep the podcast going. Couldn't do it without you. And Discord continues to be one of my favorite places to go and escape from crazy 2020-ness by just delving deep into dinosaur culture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of great conversations going on in there.
0: And I should also mention, a couple people have sent us messages during an exit survey because I know coronavirus has made money tight for a lot of people. So we obviously understand if you can't afford to continue supporting us. We really appreciate everyone who does, though. But if you put a comment in the exit survey, it's anonymous, so we can't tell who it's coming from. So we don't really have a way to respond. So if you want to say something to us, you know, send us a message before you leave. (laughs) And then we'll know who it comes from and we can email you back and forth and stuff like that.
1: If you are in a position where you can support your favorite dinosaur podcast,
0: hopefully that's us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Then consider joining our community at patreon.com slash I know dino.
0: Jumping into the news up first, we have an update on that Portuguese carcarodontosaur, which we covered back in episode 202 You may not remember that because it's about two years ago now, in late 2018. Wow. (laughs) I had to search through the history to see if we had covered this before. But back then, we talked about this Carcharodontosaur, which was found in Portugal. And Carcharodontosaurs are a subgroup of allosauroids. So most people tend to think that they were only around in the Cretaceous. But as of lately, we've been finding more that are earlier backing up into the Jurassic. So it's kind of changing things a little bit. They're mostly known from places like Africa and South America, not so much North America. But back in 2018, we talked about this Carcharodontosaur. It was about 1.7 meters or five and a half feet of likely Carcharodontosaurus tail (laughs) that was found in Portugal. And they extrapolated it to about 7.4 Meters or 24 feet long, and that it probably weighed between one and two tons, putting it in the medium sized, about the same size as Allosaurus fragilis, sort of range. They also found fragments of the right femur and tibia, as well as a nearly complete right foot. And at the time, we remarked that the right foot is the most complete late Jurassic foot on the Iberian Peninsula, which could be helpful for figuring out like where footprints came from, if it was from this type of dinosaur or something similar, things like that. So pretty good find. But at the time they said, quote, no atapomorphia or exclusive character combination can be recognized in the specimen here described in order to describe it as a new form, end quote. So in other words, they didn't think it was worthy of getting a new genus or species name or even being able to assign it to a genus or species at all hmm. so it kind of sat like that for 2 years and then enter elizabeth malafia at all in jvp and they decided that they could name it <laughs> so they named it luso venator Santosai and luso venator is from luso which basically means portuguese it's like an old name for the area in Latin or something like that. So it essentially translates to Portuguese hunter. And Santos I is after Jose Joaquim dos Santos, who discovered and collected the holotype in the 1980s and later donated it to the local museum. So you get a dinosaur named after you if you donate it a lot of the time. The holotype includes a complete set of hips, a few ribs, and about a dozen vertebrae from all over luso Venador. Unfortunately, there's no skull or limb material in the holotype, but they did refer the earlier find with that really good foot and the few other bones that we talked about in that earlier episode as like a paratype, basically. So they think it's the same species and genus, but they're not entirely sure. So only one of them is the holotype. Mm. I mean, only one of them can be a holotype in any case, but they're not entirely certain that it is the same genus, partly because the referred bones are about 8 million years younger And when individuals are 8 million years apart, it's pretty likely that they're different species. That's a really long time for one species to be around. Yes. But the overlapping tail vertebrae that they have, that's the only overlapping bones between the two specimens, look really similar. So it's possible that they're the same species. Some species do last for 8 million years, and they have no reason not to think that they're the same species. So they are for now. Like I mentioned, Luso Venador is from Portugal. Specifically, it's from the Larinja Formation, and that's a late Jurassic formation, specifically about 152 million years ago, give or take a couple million years. Obviously, there's an 8 million year younger specimen from the same formation, so it spans a pretty wide time range. It's actually really similar time range to the Morrison Formation in the US, where Allosaurus is obviously another Allosauroid. <laughs> And like many environments around the Mesozoic, Lorinha includes a whole bunch of medium to large predators. It includes Ceratosaurus, Torvosaurus, and Allosaurus europaeus, which is sometimes also considered Allosaurus fragilis, depending on if you think it's similar enough to be its own species or not. The formation also contains the smaller Lorinhanosaurus at about 4.5 meters or 15 feet long. They didn't speculate on the age of Lusovenador, but they did note that all of the vertebrae are unfused, so it's likely that it's a juvenile. Scott Hartman's skeletal has it at about 3.5 meters or 11 feet long, which obviously is way shorter than the 24 feet long <laughs> from a couple of years ago when they were looking at the paratype, what is now the paratype. So if that older estimate still holds up, then this is a lot smaller than it would have ultimately gotten as a full adult. Hmm. Although Scott Hartman specifically warned us that skeletal <laughs> scale bars are often not all that accurate. So maybe I shouldn't be basing a length estimate off of his specific <laughs> skeletal <laughs> drawing, but it's the best I can do. They didn't put it in the text. The phylogenetic analysis of Lusovenator puts it in as a basal carcharodontosaur, which shouldn't be surprising that it's basal since it's in the Jurassic. And until recently, most people considered the Cretaceous when you'd find carcharodontosaurs, Another useful thing about finding this Carcarodontosaur is that luso Venador, quote, supports unequivocally the hypothesis of a pre-Cretaceous scenario for the radiation of the clade, end quote. So this is another case of ghost lineages shrinking way down, because there used to be this really long ghost lineage from Allosaurus-type time frame 150 million years ago, all the way until the Cretaceous began and you started seeing the first Carcharodontosaurs, but now we're filling in the gaps with some other Carcharodontosaurs. So that's handy. Although maybe I should mention, there have been a couple other discoveries that have also challenged the Carcharodontosaurs only being from the Cretaceous, some like other Jurassic finds. So this isn't the first one, but I think it's probably the best find of a Jurassic Carcharodontosaur to date. And it's the first known Laurasian Carcharodontosaur from the Jurassic, which is also handy because the other one's in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. Still, we don't have any Carcharodontosaurs from the Morrison Formation. We just have the Allosaurids and Allosauroids. It could be more evidence that Europe and North America weren't connected at the time, but then reconnected later in the Mesozoic.
1: Can it also be we just haven't found enough fossils yet?
0: Yes, it could be. You might be able to argue that the Morrison already had a bunch of large predators because you've got Allosaurus fragilis and Saurophaganax, also known as Allosaurus maximus. But like we see in Larinha, there are lots of these weird assemblages that have just tons of large predators, especially dinosaurs. So it wouldn't be the first area to have a wide array of large carnivorous dinosaurs. But The Morrison is pretty well explored, and we haven't found any carcarodontosaurs yet, so it's possible that they're not there at all. It's hard to prove the absence of something. Mm -hmm. But at least we know that they were around definitely in the late Jurassic now, in Africa and Europe. Up next, as promised, we've got a little bit of geology going on. This one was written by Adriana Mancusoa and others and published in Gondwana Research, which is paywalled, and usually that annoys me. But it's geology, so I think a summary is fine.
1: <laughs> I see.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's there were a couple articles about it, so I could fill in the gaps pretty well. Specifically, in this paper, they were looking at the Carnian pluvial explosion. That's my preferred name for it. It goes by a couple other names, but they're all abbreviated CPE. And it's in the Carnian, which is a stage in the late Triassic, about 237 to 227 million years ago, which you may notice is basically when dinosaurs first started diversifying a lot and we start finding them in the fossil record. Specifically during the CPE, there was evidence of a lot of volcanism in Western Canada. And for a long time, there's been a question of whether or not this caused a bunch of climate change and whether that climate change may have been what led to dinosaurs popping up in the fossil record at that point. Another question is whether or not that climate change happened globally or if it was just in the Northern hemisphere because sometimes since this is volcanism, it can stay in one hemisphere, depending on how the winds blow and how big of a volcanic eruption it is and things like that. But fortunately, these researchers were working in the Isquigualasto formation in Northwest Argentina, and that's where a lot of early dinosaurs and dinosaur morphs are found, to the point where a lot of people think that this might even be where dinosaurs originated.
1: I wonder if we'll ever know for sure
0: it's really hard to tell but back then the continents were all still stuck together so where they originated isn't really all that important because it's it's all just kind of one continent and they would have spread out really quickly this formation is really useful because as co-author randall ermes from the university of utah said quote our study focused on these rocks because they had the perfect combination of a good fossil record Datable ash layers, and rich climate data preserved in lake sediments, end quote. So specifically, this paper dated the formation to 234.47 plus or minus 0.44 million years ago using uranium lead isotope dating. So it's right about 234 million years ago. And I believe that that 234 million years ago is about 3 million years before earlier estimates of the CPE Although I saw a couple other places that were dating it to 234.
1: So it's possible dinosaurs were a little bit earlier than we originally thought?
0: Yeah, so this puts the CPE near the beginning of the Carnian, whereas before you might have put it more in the middle of the Carnian. And we know that there are a lot of dinosaurs in this formation, so it helps to tie together the CPE with dinosaurs really starting to diversify With that date, so really what it means is we know that there were a lot of dinosaurs from this formation from before, and now we can date them to 234 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's also a good date for the CPE. So it's handy in a lot of ways. They also looked at the carbon and oxygen isotopes. That was the part about the climate data that was preserved. And they found that they were stable around the CPE, which is interesting because A lot of other things say that they changed dramatically, although they did say overall it shows that the CPE in Gondwana was warmer and more humid than the periods before and after. So I guess it changed during the CPE, but during the CPE it was stable and then switched back to like a drier and cooler climate. Hmm. I'm going to talk more about the Carnian pluvial event during the fun fact, but Suffice it to say that this article seems to confirm that the CPE was a global event, and it does seem to line up pretty well with at least some of the early dinosaur fossils that we have. And it showed that, like we expected, it was warmer and more humid than the rest of the late Triassic. This is geology helping us understand the origins of dinosaurs.
1: Good. <laughs> so even though it was a paywalled article, still useful.
0: hmm Yeah, open access is better.
1: In other news, University Malaysia Kelantan recently found dinosaur footprints in Bukit Pano, which is a state constituency in the state of Kelantan in Malaysia. They're sauropod footprints. It took researchers over 10,000 hours to work on the tracks and confirm that yes, they did come from sauropods. The article said that the sauropod had a spine that was probably 30 feet or 9 meters tall and weighed 30 to 40 tons and it also said that these tracks are from between 160 to 66 million years old, although it was a little bit unclear. They had a few different numbers in there.
0: That is a ridiculously large time range. Yes. Like that's longer than even just all of the Cretaceous.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like there might be some more work to do. Yeah. But it's cool that they found them. And last, I don't know why this keeps coming up, I guess it's a popular topic. So how to geek shared a way to hack that hidden Google Chrome dinosaur game, the chasing one, where you can make your T-Rex invincible. And I tried it. I impressed Garrett very briefly. And then he saw my T-Rex run through some cactus and it didn't end the game. So he wasn't so impressed after that. Yeah, But I did finally see the pterosaur and also the very abrupt changes between night and day in the game. If I wasn't invincible, I probably would have lost when it changed between the two.
0: I think you did a pretty good job at the transition. But yeah, I was really impressed. And I was telling Sabrina, wow, look at you go. You're doing such a great job. And she said nothing, even though she was cheating. And then I was like, I thought you hit that cactus a little bit. And she didn't say anything. And then eventually she just ran straight through one. And I realized something was up. I told you. (laughs) You did.
1: I did want to see how long I could get you to believe it was me (laughs) being really good at the game.
0: How many thousands of points you could get. Mm -hmm. It was a lot before I noticed. It was. You were doing a good job, though.
1: And then the game got so fast it was getting a little blurry for me, and then I just let it run for a while.
0: Just to see if something changed when you got a certain number of points. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert, it doesn't really. It just goes faster and faster.
1: Yeah, although I forget how many points I racked up before I gave up.
0: I think about 10,000. Yeah. It was a lot longer than you'd usually have to wait for your internet to start working again, which is when that <laughs> screen usually pops up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because that game pops up when your internet is not connected. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: And now for our dinosaur of the day, Sinosauroterex, which was a request from Diplodocate via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Cinosauroterex was a compsignathid that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Liaoning province in China, in the Yixian Formation. It was small, and the longest specimen found was about 3.5 feet or 1.07 meters long, and weighed 1.2 pounds or half a kilogram. The holotype of Cinosauroterex was only 27 inches 68 centimeters long, but it was a juvenile. Cinosauroteryx was bipedal. It had short arms, large claws on its first fingers, and a long tail. Its tail was so long, there were 64 vertebrae in the tail. Oof. It's the longest tail relative to the body length of any known theropod. Wow. Yeah. So as you can imagine, the tail probably helped it balance while it ran. It also had long legs. Its arms were about 30% the length of its legs.
0: So it wasn't that bird-like then?
1: It's bird-like in other ways, which I'll get to.
0: Just not in the having wings way.
1: I suppose, yes. Its hands were long, though, compared to its arms, and it had three fingers on each hand. It also had a high skull. So Sinosoroteryx was similar to Compsignathus. The type and only species is Sinosoroteryx prima, and the genus name means Chinese reptilian wing. The species name means first, and it refers to the fact that it's the first feathered non-avian dinosaur found. Wow. Yep. So that makes it pretty bird-like. The original description of Sinosaur terex found that this dinosaur, quote, upsets and supersedes the over 100-year standing of Archaeopteryx as the ancestor to birds, end quote. And it helps show Ostrom's proposal that theropods turned into birds.
0: A few people lately would probably dissent with that (laughs) statement that it supersedes Archaeopteryx as an ancestor to birds. But the evolution of dinosaurs into birds is still really messy and hard to tell. Yes.
1: But this was the original description, which was in 1996. Mm -hmm. It was described by G. N. G. So again, it's the first dinosaur outside of AVLA to be found with evidence of feathers. It's not closely related to Archaeopteryx. And it's distantly related to Aves, so it's not a bird.
0: Depending on how you look at it, I guess.
1: Yeah. Cinosauroteryx was discovered in 1996 by Lee Yuman, who's a farmer and fossil hunter. The fossils were found in two slabs, and he sold them to two museums, (laughs) the National Geological Museum in Beijing and the Nanjing Institute of Geology and Paleontology. It was a really big find. It got a lot of scientists and artists excited, including Phil Curry, Michael Skretnik, and John Ostrom. Three specimens have now been found and described and assigned to Sinosauroteryx. One of the specimens may actually be a new species or even a new genus, but it hasn't been officially named. Sinosauroteryx was carnivorous. It ate insects and small mammals. It had heterodont teeth, so different shaped teeth, with teeth on the upper jaws being slender and not serrated, and then teeth behind them on the maxillae were serrated. One specimen was found with lizard gut contents, and it was likely that that was Dalinghosaurus, which was a fast-running lizard. It's also been found with small eggs in the abdomen, though they were in the wrong part of the body for the eggshells to have stayed intact, so it's likely they were actually unlaid Cinosauroteryx eggs and not something it ate. These eggs were 1.4 inches, or 36 millimeters long, and 1 inch, or 26 millimeters wide. And there were two of them, so having two eggs may mean that Cinosauroteryx had dual oviducts, like other theropods, and then it laid eggs in pairs.
0: Wow, that's cool, because we've always wondered when dinosaurs switched from two ovaries to one.
1: Mm -hmm. There's another specimen, the one that may be another species or genus, was found with mammal jaws in its gut region, including the jaws of Jangheotherium, which is a venomous mammal. This mammal had tarsal spurs, spurs on the feet, that were similar to the modern platypus, which also produces venom. A little mini fun fact. Yeah. So, Cinosauroteryx was the first non-avian dinosaur found with feather-like structures. It had these simple filament-like feathers. They were short, small, and uniform. So, primitive feathers, and they were up to 1.2 inches or 3 centimeters long. Cinosauroteryx couldn't fly, but its feathers may have been used for insulation or display. These primitive feathers, again, they're short. They're down like filaments. They were on the back of the head, the arms, the neck, the back, and then the top and bottom of the tail. Feathers have also been found on the sides of the body of Cinosauroteryx in patches. And Chen Dong and Zheng suggested that based on the patches and randomness of these patches, Cinosauroteryx was probably covered in feathers when it was alive.
0: Oh, like... It wasn't a pattern, <laughs> so it's probably just, it was taphonomy that some of the feathers were missing. Yeah, it didn't actually have bald spots. <laughs> or maybe it did.
1: Well, there's a gap between the feathers and the bones, and that was probably filled in by skin and muscle tissue. Scientists found by looking through a microscope that the filaments were dark along the edges and light inside, so they may have been hollow like feathers of modern birds. The feathers, they were too dense to examine single structures, however, but there may have been two types of filaments, thick and thin ones, and the thick ones were stiffer. The feathers may have had a central quill with thinner projections or barbs coming out, which is similar to modern bird feathers, but then with more primitive structures. In 2018, Evan Seda and others did a study that found the thick filaments may actually be bundles of thin filaments. They found that the thick filaments didn't have any calcium phosphate, and that's what's found in modern feather quills. They suggested that Sinosauroteryx feathers were single-branch filaments, though maybe sometimes they joined at the base into tufts, kind of like down-like feathers. The filaments of Sinosauroteryx were controversial at first and thought by some to be collagen fibers instead of primitive feathers, and that these fibers formed a frill on the back and under the tail, Hmm. like some modern aquatic lizards. Not having feathers would mean that Cynosauroteryx was not the most basal-known theropod with feathers, and it would also call into question the theory that feathers evolved for insulation first instead of flight, and that they appeared in basal dinosaurs that evolved into birds. So many scientists did not agree that the structures were fibers. Then, a 2017 paper by Smithwick and others found that the structures were definitely not collagen fibers. They compared it to well-known collagen fibers in the ichthyosaur, Stenoterigeus, and they found that the apparently shaft-like collagen fibers in the Ixiosaur were actually scratch marks and cracks. And the shafts in Cinosaur were the actual fossilized structures.
0: Twist. hmm
1: They also found no evidence of the filaments having beaded structures similar to those found in decaying collagen in modern sea mammals. And suggested that parts of the fossil was preserved in 3D and they just cast shadows. In the low quality photos that looked like these beaded structures. And again, that's just an example of scientists using extant animals and animals that we can study closely to compare to extinct animals. In the holotype in the abdomen of Sinocerotarix, there's a pigmented area that was thought to possibly be traces of organs, maybe the liver, that John Rubin and others described as part of a crocodilian like, quote unquote, hepatic piston respiratory system which is this specialized breathing mechanism where muscles attach to the liver and pubic bones of the hip and they pull the liver back to inflate the lungs for short bursts of running and activity.
0: Hmm. That's weird.
1: Yeah a later study found that the pigmented area was probably part of an organ or something inside the body and the organs would have been distorted and flattened through the fossilization process. The dark pigment was also found in the eye area Cinosauroteryx was the first dinosaur to have its colors scientifically described, and it had this reddish light-banded coloration on its tail. Nick Longrich in 2002 suggested that it had a banding pattern on the tail that alternated between dark and light colors because the dark-banded areas were so evenly spaced it couldn't have been from random separation of the fossil slabs, so they must have been fossilized pigments. Also, Cinosauroteryx may have had countershading, with dark feathers on the top of the body and lighter colors on the bottom, and then the bands on the tail would have helped it to camouflage. Fucheng Jiang and others in 2010 supported this idea when they found evidence of preserved melanosomes, and they confirmed the dark and light tail banding of Cinosauroteryx. They compared melanosome types to those in modern burns and came up with a range of colors, and they found the darker Cinosauroteryx feathers in the tail were chestnut or reddish-brown, and that's based on these melanosomes being spherical in shape. They don't know the color of the lighter stripes, though, because some pigments degrade and you can't tell them from fossils. But finding these melanosomes is more evidence that these structures were feathers. Later findings found that Cinosauroteryx had a bandit mask like a raccoon around (laughs) its eyes, and it had countershading patterns on its body, usually associated with an animal that lived in an open habitat, so not much covering, instead of a dense forest. And that means that the biota in the Yixian Formation and Geofotang Formation had a variety of habitat types, not just forest.
0: But countershading is useful in forests as well. It's just a little less dramatic, I think.
1: Yeah, it could be. So with the countershading, Sinosauroteryx could blend in. And dinosaurs, we know, had good vision, so they needed camouflage. And for Sinosauroteryx, it needed to blend in to avoid predators and also sneak up on its prey. So its bandit mask may have helped with defense or to be a warning signal.
0: Would it help with defense because it'd be harder to find the eyes in a fight or something?
1: I think so. But Sinosauroteryx was so small it probably wasn't a threat to larger theropods. Because its tail was so long, it probably couldn't hold its tail perfectly horizontal all the time. So having the banded tail may have helped throw off predators and prey, basically by being a distraction and drawing attention away from the head and the body. It's also possible that the banding on the tail made it less recognizable to predators. Cinosauroteryx probably spent a lot of time in the sun, not in the shade, and it lived in an area with freshwater lakes, gymnosperm forests like conifers, and a lot of insects, bivalves, and gastropods, as well as mammals and birds. There were a lot of volcanic eruptions and wildfires and noxious gases that came from the lakes, but it was temperate. There were wet and dry seasons. The yearly temperature was about 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius.
0: pretty cool. And our fun fact of the day is about the Carnian Pluvial Explosion, aka the Carnian Pluvial Event or the Carnian Pluvial Episode. Fortunately, they are all abbreviated CPE.
1: That's a lot of different names.
0: (laughs) It is. I feel like there's probably others as well. But in every case... Carnian is that period in the late Triassic that we were talking about earlier when we start to see a lot of dinosaurs in the fossil record and pluvial refers to rainfall so it's a little bit different than some of the other extinction events that we talk about. In general the CPE was a rainy and humid period in the late Triassic but it was otherwise pretty dry like I mentioned earlier. So We can tell this because there are changes in oxygen isotopes and those are linked to either a significant warming or a drop in water salinity or possibly both. And the significance of reduced salinity is that it's probably a result of more rain, which obviously gives you a little bit of information about the environment. During the CPE, lots of ocean life went extinct, including some types of algae and lots of invertebrates like aminoids and some small filter feeders, like really small millimeter type size. There was lots of volcanism in Wrangelia during the CPE, and Wrangell is a town in Southern Alaska. The area of Wrangelia stretches down through much of Yukon and British Columbia, Canada, and some people also include part of the Northwestern US. But the important thing about it is that during the CPE there was a lot of volcanism happening which released a bunch of carbon dioxide and possibly sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. It wasn't a violent explosion so it didn't launch this stuff into the upper atmosphere with a bunch of ash so it wouldn't have reflected a lot of the sun but in general carbon dioxide absorbs sun and warms things up. That's the whole global warming thing happening now whereas sulfur dioxide tends to reflect the sun, especially if it gets in the upper atmosphere and cools things off. However, I think in this case, more carbon dioxide was released, or at least enough more was released that it seemed to warm the environment. And it could have also led to ocean acidification, which might be why some of these hard-bodied animals that have calcium on their outsides went extinct, because acidification ends up dissolving that so that's something we're seeing now with coral reefs and things struggling with the increased acidification of the water on the plus side some new animals appeared as well in addition to early dinosaurs showing up there were also the first dinoflagellates (laughs) which are these really cool little microorganisms some of them light up there are also new plankton and lots of new trees The new trees might actually be a clue for why dinosaurs started thriving at that point because dinosaurs are relatively taller than other animals that were around at the time. And it's possible that they were able to enjoy the leaves of these new trees more than the other animals. And basically then they had this additional food source that other animals couldn't take advantage of. They also had gastroliths while some of the other animals didn't. And some of these new trees had pretty tough leaves. You know, they're basically like pine trees tough needly type stuff. And some of the shorter animals could only handle soft stuff like ferns, so they kind of had a double advantage in this way. They could eat the trees and they could also digest them. The range of time for the CPE isn't exactly known, but it's sometime in the Carnian, fortunately. (laughs) So the name isn't gonna need to change. It's around 230 to 234 million years ago, but it was probably about a two million year stretch in there. So we don't know exactly where that two million year stretch was in that period. The new paper by Mankusoa et al. that I talked about earlier shows those diverse dinosaurs about 234 million years ago. So it's a little bit closer to the early end. But even with those diverse dinosaurs showing up at 234 million years ago, right during that CPE, The CPE wasn't really the beginning of the reign of dinosaurs and dinosaurs dominating the world ecosystem, at least on land. That didn't happen until 30 million years later when the Triassic-Jurassic extinction happened and that really wiped out all the non-dinosaur archosaurs and they really took over in a major way. And we started seeing stuff like really big sauropods and all sorts of cool big theropods and lots of stuff evolving during the Jurassic.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And come join our growing dinosaur enthusiast community at patreon.com slash InoDino. Thanks again, and until next time.